Okay, alrighty. Let's come back to it. Um, hey, first up, I mean, who thinks Bruce needs to bring back the sideburns and Mo? That was amazing. <laughs> Bruce, what happened? That looked amazing. I think he missed that. I was talking about your sideburns and Mo. Very, yeah. Um, hey, guys, it's December, so it is now okay to talk about Christmas. I've forgiven those of you who have started talking about it in November. Uh, and December means there is some good news and some bad news. The bad news is that Michael Bublé is about to be incessantly played over the next month, droning away, <laughs> causing my ears to bleed. But the good news... Well, let's dive into the passage today for the good news. We're going to stick to 1 Chronicles 22, verses 6 to 10, like a mince pie to every corner of your mouth. So let's crack it open, and we'll give it a read. Cool. I'll give you a moment to find it. For those who are old school and have brought their um, old copies of their, their Bibles or get onto the technology. Right. Then David called for Solomon, his son and charged him to build a house for the Lord, the God of Israel. David said to Solomon, My son, I had it in my heart to build a house to the name of the Lord, my God. But this word of the Lord came to me, saying, You have shed much blood and have waged great wars. You shall not build a house to my name, because you have shed so much blood before me on the earth. Behold, a son shall be born to you, who shall be a man of rest, I will give him rest from all his surrounding enemies, for his name shall be Solomon, and I will give peace and quiet to Israel in his days. He shall build a house for my name. He shall be my son, and I will be his father, and I will establish his royal throne in Israel forever. Okay, um, there's a TV series called The Crown, and I hear some smirks and sniggering already. I'm intrigued by that. And this series is chronicling the life of the royal family, starting from before Elizabeth II became queen, um, right up until I think the latest series is covering the modern day, um, or the stuff in the 90s anyway. And season one is just a masterclass, in my opinion. The first two episodes are just the epitome of British acting, and the music is amazing, and the, the cinematography, and all of it coming together. Uh, season two is, is good, it's, it's okay, and, and the rest is sensationalized drivel, if that's your cup of tea. But anyway, season one is awesome. And in The Crown, there are um, just moments of <laughs> these royal courtiers and, and private secretaries having to communicate things to the queen or members of the royal family, and their use of the English language is precise. It is, is well-versed. Their vocabulary is extensive. Um, it's like a poetic kind of dance hearing them speak. But they don't muck around either. They are straight to the point. And I've just been, yeah, I really enjoyed that. I, I watched it, um, I watched season one again in September um, after Elizabeth passed away. Because that, that moment really struck deep for me. Uh, it was such a, it is such a seismic change, her passing away. Um, and actually, she passed away on the same day as my granddad's funeral, who passed away in, in August. So it was all kicking off for me emotionally and, and processing stuff. Um, it was very poignant. And I really felt God was, was talking to me through that and helping me through watching it. Um, and 
this, this whole area of, of, it just struck me with the courtiers, them saying it how it is and, and being direct, it reminded me of the books I've been reading this year in, in Scripture. Um, and I, I started off in Judges when Anna did a preach earlier this year. And then I've just been working my way through. And that leads us to 1 and 2 Samuel and 1 and 2 Kings, which Paul has preached from 1 Samuel in November. Um, and we don't know for sure who the authors of these four books are. Uh, there is some conjecture, especially with 1 and 2 Samuel, you kind of think, well, maybe it was Samuel, hence the name. Um, and if not, definitely kind of Gad or um, Nathan might have been involved, or a real prophetic edge to the books. But these books really remind me of the, the courtiers in, in The Crown. They just they give this, this blow-by-blow account, um, but there's also kind of a personal depth and they're not afraid of, of, of kind of talking about things. Um, who did what? What did they do well? What did they not do well? Whilst maintaining respect um, and decency in how they write about it. And then we have one and two chronicles. Where again, an unknown author is writing. And they're more focused on practicalities than one and two kings, which is a similar um, time era. In 1 and 2 Chronicles, we find genealogies, we find lists of names and roles, we find um, a real depth of covenant between God and David, and especially a focus on religious ceremony going on at the time and what was going on in, in, in regards to religious ceremonies. But I don't think 1 and 2 Chronicles go into the same depth as 1 and 2 Samuel and 1 and 2 Kings. They don't go into the same personal depth. And to give an example, in chapter 20, which is a couple of chapters before the text we're looking at today, um, 1 Chronicles covers the time period where David um, chose to commit adultery with Bathsheba, and then he killed um, her husband. And there's no mention of it in chapter 20 of 1 Chronicles. Not one mention. And it's so clear, reading 2 Samuel, that the man, David, was never the same again after that incident. Never the same. And not for good either. Yet 1 Chronicles doesn't mention the incident or the ramifications of the incident. However, what we do have in chapter 22 is we do not have an omission of personal depth. We actually have an inclusion. So we're looking at some details today in these six, seven, eight, nine, ten, five verses. Five verses. We're looking at some inclusion of personal depth. And so let's look at this text today. If we could go back a slide, please, Leslie, that'd be awesome. There's a couple of um, tr- ooh, hello. There's a couple of truths um, that this passage communicates, which I just want to start off with. And the first we can see it in verse seven. It's real simple. God has given us hearts. David said to Solomon, my son, I had it in my heart to build a house to the name of the Lord my God. Now that's not just the red thing ticking away inside of us, but um, hearts hearts that feel, hearts that desire, um, hearts connected to a mind that thinks, hearts that choose for good or for bad. And obviously, we have a brain, and I'm not discounting that, but when we're talking about the heart, we're talking about things where when you describe them or when you're talking from the heart, you can feel it in here, or you almost want to reach for here 
when you're talking or thinking about those things. And I, I checked these passages when I was reading them, going through them in my, in my um, just time with God this year. David did not get told by God to build a temple or a house for him. David chose. He had it in his heart. And of course, God tells us at times very clearly not to do things um, and to do things for our good. Yet also in the midst of that, we've been made people of expression. And what does that tell us? What does that tell us that we've been made as people of expression? And not just made people of expression, but created as people of expression. God really loves our personalities. He loves seeing us become more of ourselves. He delights over us. He doesn't want us just as robots. And he doesn't just know how many hairs are on top of our head. He knows the nature of our smile and what makes us smile. He takes a keen interest in our personal expression and who we are. And these are all signs pointing to who God is and how he has joyfully made us. People with hearts that think, feel, choose, and desire. And so that's our first point. God has given us hearts. But there's a second point. And that is that sin has consequences. And if we look at verse 8, we see here that, that David actually had this word from the Lord. But because you have shed much blood and have waged great wars, you shall not build a house to my name. Because you have shed so much. There were consequences to what he did. And it's hard to find the words to communicate how significant David was to the people of Israel. And how significant he was in just everything going on at that time. The words spoken over him by the Lord were incredible. His covenant, his agreement with the Lord was so deep and rich. The desire the Lord had for him and his bloodline, and consequently the people of Israel too. He was a man who followed God in downright stunning ways. I mean, who else would have picked up the few stones and faced Goliath in this room? He was labeled a man after God's own heart. Yet he was one who fell dramatically short of perfection. Not just the incident with Bathsheba, but as I said earlier, there was such a noticeable shift after that moment for the, when, when reading the rest of 2 Samuel. And I think we can look at um, isolated moments with David. Um, I was really thinking about this for myself. You know, we, we hear about David and Goliath, or we hear about David and Bathsheba, or we hear about David anointed king by Samuel early on in his life, or, or David in the wilderness being chased by Saul. But there's something about looking at the whole of David's life and just seeing this, this moment just tip things. It, it, it came across to me, and, and I'd be intrigued what you guys would say, but it came across to me that the man was never the same again. He was, he was broken almost by that incident. And there are consequences um, in other parts of Scripture from what David did that are terrifyingly dire for him, his family, and Israel. And then comes Solomon, his son. Again, agreement with the Lord. 
the desire the Lord had for him, the good intentions God had for him, are stunning. And consequently, the people of God too. If we look at verses 9 and 10, um, if we could switch those, Leslie. This stuff is loaded with goodness that God desires for Solomon and the people of Israel. A man who followed God in downright stunning ways, with wisdom the likes of which had never been seen, yet one who fell dramatically short of perfection, especially towards the second half of his life, like his father. Again, the consequences were terrifyingly dire for him, his family, and Israel. And I say family because one of the things that struck me about one and two kings was that it seemed as much about the absence of fathers and, and mothers as well, in a way, but predominantly actually fathers, as it was, um, sorry, the, the, the absence of mothers and fathers, but particularly fathers, and the breakdown of family, as much as it was about the kingship and the choices there. They, they seem to be inseparably linked. I almost wanted to call it kind of one family and two family as I was reading about it. And I would argue that there's a strong connection between the two, the state of their family and the state of the kingship and, and Israel, if not a direct correlation. And I, I, it just struck me, um, how could such phenomenal people of God fall so much and so far? It was a really sobering moment just reflecting on it. And almost like as I was reading the, the stories, I knew what was going to happen. I, I, there was no kind of, uh, I'd, I'd read them before and heard about them before. But there was this, this anguish almost building up in me as it unfolded, um, as things started to crumble, and as they moved away from the Lord. And then obviously I don't have it all sorted either. <laughs> Thank you. Um, we are so prone to sin. We're so prone to wandering. We completely and utterly desperately need help. And our own sin can have catastrophic, catastrophic consequences too. And it doesn't take a Christian to know that. Romans 6.23 um, says the wages of sin are death. And if left to our own devices, it's a bleak outlook, to put it lightly. And if that's the end of the message, we are all in trouble, and it is a gloomy Sunday morning, but don't worry, I'm going to take it better. <laughs> it's really interesting watching what's happening in Hollywood and Netflix and Disney um, at times, keeping an eye on it, because it, it's really revealing what, through, it's revealing by seeing what they're trying to communicate, and it's really revealing seeing what people are consuming and agreeing with. Really revealing. Um, so, like, take, for example, um, the, the Avengers and, and all the, the Marvel stuff, the superhero stuff. Well, automatically, I mean, there's so many reflections of the gospel message going on in these films. Um, they, they're not complete reflections, but there is a mirroring going on. And also, there's there are these superheroes kicking off left, right, and center with all these abilities and and, and things that they, they, they can do. Well, one of the things that tells me automatically about that is particularly young people do not have a trouble or trouble, do not have a problem wrapping their heads around the gifts of the Spirit. When they experience God and when they hear about what it's like 
um, following God. That's not a completely alien concept. There's lots going on there. Anyway, going deeper into to these movies um, and thinking about, you know, if we're just left to our own devices, the wages of sin are death. There's this moment in one of the superhero films where um, to, it, it's in this Marvel universe where there's been so many films and so many characters and they're all coming together in these last two films and it's, it's a big good versus evil um, shindig. And the baddies coming in and it's all going pear-shaped and one of the main characters has the ability to tell how many variables there are and, and, and from this moment here, which way it could go in the future. And there's something like 12, I can't remember, 12, 13, 14 million ways that this moment could lead to consequences or, or what could happen next. There's 12 to 14 million ways it could go. And then he gets asked by someone else, how many work out well? And he doesn't answer, but they just share a look. And you know things are not going well. And then towards the end of this, this second parter, uh, of, of the last two films, there's a crucial moment where arguably the, the main good guy has a choice to lay down his life and save the world. Does this sound familiar? Or choose a selfish path. And he looks to the person who has the gift, who just looks back and does this. One shot. One shot. And so we come to the main character of the passage, which is not David, nor is it Solomon. Verses 9 and 10 are words of God spoken about and for Solomon to enter into. But they're also an echo, a signpost, a shadow, a yearning for the one to come, the only one who could fulfill those words. The one whose scripture points to straight after the fall of Adam and Eve in Genesis 3.15, where God says there will be one to come, a seed of Eve, the offspring of Eve, who will stamp on the serpent's head, who was there in the beginning too. And since that moment, the trajectory of history and the whole earth was building towards the Christmas story and the one at the very center of the Christmas story. The only one who could fulfill that. Let's read verses 9 and 10 again. Behold, a son shall be born to you who shall be a man of rest. I will give him rest from all his surrounding enemies. For his name shall be Solomon, and I will give peace and quiet to Israel in his days. He shall build a house for my name. He shall be my son, and I will be his father. And I will establish his royal throne in Israel forever. Keep your eyes on that for a moment or on the Bible in front of you if you've got it there. The Son of God, born, fully human and fully God. A man of rest. Rest from his enemies, sin and death, whom he will have complete victory over. He shall be Emmanuel. That will be his name, God with us. And he will never leave us. He will be the Prince of Peace king of the kingdom where every tear is wiped away. He shall build his church. He is the son of a good, loving, almighty father, inviting us into the family too. Of the increase of his government, there will be no end. 
and he will rule forever. He is the only one who could be the one. The only one who could be the true king and the all-sufficient savior for the world. The one who will not shed the blood of others for victory, but instead will have his own blood shed for the sake of everyone in the world. And it is Jesus, the perfect king, who did not fall far from perfection, but was perfect. The true king where there are no dire consequences from his reign. Romans 6.23 says the wages of sin are death, but it also says, after a comma, that the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus, our Lord. The one in the power of the Holy Spirit who made a way back to the Father. Perfect friendship and perfect connection. So that we then get to verses like Romans 8.1, which says there is therefore no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And I just want to kind of um, enter this last part of the talk just by looking at two phrases from these two verses. Man of rest and peace and quiet. Let's look at the the peace and quiet first. Um, I just found that so interesting that this popped up, peace and quiet, as a phrase. And it's nowhere else in the Bible. But how often do we say, oh, I could just do some peace and quiet? You know, or like, <laughs> we, we, we talk about it in so many different contexts, that phrase. Um, and it I struck me again, coming back to God has given us hearts. He has made us to have these desires, these longings. But he is also there to meet them. And he has shown us ways, good ways that he has established where we can gain peace and quiet in the true, full, good sense of the phrase. God is the only one ultimately who we're going to receive true peace and quiet from. And there is so much going on in the world. I know I've mentioned this before, but I'm going to keep layering this, that there is so much going on. There's so much anxiety, um, concern about the climate, concern about COVID, concern about finances, concern about mental health, and it goes on, it goes on, it goes on. There's a lot of heat going on at the moment. And that's really revealing where we're choosing to get peace and quiet from where we think we're getting peace and quiet from. And then there's the usual life stuff, you know? Like, I don't know if you have them, like, mornings where, you know, like, the, the, the butter's fallen off the bench, and, you know, you've, you've, you've put your wrong socks on, I don't know, all that sort of stuff, you know? It's all just bizarre. Um, and, and more stuff which is deeper than that, too. We've got such a wide range of things. And then there's family at Christmas time which is always an interesting one. (laughs) And that varies per family. Some it's great, some it's not. Some it's a bit of in-between. There's always challenges with family, as well as the potential for some beaut times too. And then there's those whose concern is actually too much peace and quiet. Loneliness, loss, grief. Thinking about loved ones currently. And then there's those with a heavy heart. And then there are those who don't resonate with any of the above. And life is hunky-dory. Regardless of whether you sit with that, we can all look to the man of rest. 
this month and right now today. And we all need to. And not with an intent to avoid or run away from life, but actually to meet Jesus in the midst of life. There's a, a, something called the Westminster Confession, which is a fancy name uh, that was conjured up by some very switched-on academic people who loved the Lord uh, quite a few centuries ago. And they decided that the chief aim of man is to glorify God and enjoy Him forever. And sometimes I feel like it's easy to pitch a talk um, on something like the man of rest just at those who are struggling right now. When actually, even if you're hunky-dory and loving life, you can, you can still enjoy Jesus. And we are encouraged to enjoy him. And he is there to be enjoyed. And it is good and right to enjoy him. And we can go deeper. And remembering that he offers eternal life in him too. Band, if you want to um, come on up, feel free. That'd be awesome. Thanks. And I, I had a moment the other day. Um, I find one of the challenges around this time of year is I can just get really wired. You know, summer camp's coming up, and they've got to preach, and um, all good stuff, but it just, stuff starts building. You know, there's the Christmas shopping, and you want to get stuff done by a certain time, and it's the end of the year, and all that sort of stuff. And I just realized I was really wired and carrying things I didn't need to carry. Um, and so I was like, right, going on my prayer walk. I just started giving it to God. And just saying, God, I just want to give it to you. I just want to know you, Jesus, as the man of rest in this moment. I want to know you as the man of rest. And I think we all have those moments. We all have varying moments. But ultimately, we all need the man of rest. But not just to look at Jesus. As amazing as that is, the Bible says we're transformed when we look at Jesus. Loving the ringtone. I think you've just won something on Candy Crush Saga. Not just to look at him, but to actually enjoy him in our hearts. To enjoy him in our hearts. Now that's an interesting one, because I'm not saying he's left our hearts if we're believers. But I think we can get hard, like I was with just taking it all on, and I'm just like getting blinkered, and I'm doing things, and I'm not actually letting him into every part of my heart. So what are the areas of our hearts that we want to let Jesus, the man of rest, into today? Not just looking at him, being like, wow, he's cool, that's put a smile on my face. But actually letting him deep in. And he's so willing. (laughs) We just need to let him. So I wonder if we just take a moment, let's just pause and let's look to Jesus, the man of rest, the true king. And let's just invite him afresh. Let's invite him into the busyness. Let's invite him into the grief. Let's invite him into that areas of our heart where we don't feel good enough. Where where it hurts. Where there is loss. Where there is hardness of heart. Whether we've just got bored or used to the gospel message. Or even if we're just hunky-dory, let's just invite him in again.
God, I just ask for holy transactions right now. You take the weights that are not ours to carry. You forgive us for the ways we've gone ahead of you. Thank you for your tender, gentle love. Thank you for your kindness. Lord, we don't want to get caught up in just stuff, um, whatever that looks like this month. We want to start off this month just by giving it to you, inviting you. Lord, where it feels same old with certain family members, Lord, we invite you into our hearts in that area. We invite you into the situation.